The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Cole joining me today. Hi, Cole. Can you give me a brief instruction about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your career, and what you've been up to recently. Yeah, thanks for having me, Natasha. Um, So for those who don't know, my name is Cole Mary. I'm a professional engineer. So my background, I have a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and a master's in mechatronics engineering. I'm a professional engineer, and then I decided to go back to school, and I'm in the Rehabilitation Sciences program, and I'm currently a PhD candidate at UBC. So I've just been kind of floating around in the engineering space, and then decided to pursue more of the healthcare angle of that, and kind of have the intersection between healthcare and technology is really where I kind of sit in that. Um, and yeah, I've just been looking to how we can, how can we use all this novel technology and all this cool stuff that's being done around us to enhance healthcare and rehabilitation. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. So you're on this podcast because you're diagnosed with a rheumatic disease. What is your diagnosis and when were you diagnosed? Yeah, so I was actually diagnosed with osteoarthritis about three years ago, so around 2020, 2019. Um, Symptoms kind of came on in 2017, so I've been dealing with it for kind of five, six years now. Went on to have a hip replacement in September of 2022, Um, so I've just been kind of coming off of the rehab from that. Uh, But yeah, essentially getting a little bit into the history of all of this, um, I didn't really have any sort of trauma or any really sort of traumatic event or coming on of my disease. It was kind of one day I was at the gym, I was doing a squat and it kind of felt a little weird. And this was again in 2017, came out of that, just something didn't feel right. So it kind of cascaded and I, I sat on it for a few months, dealt with that, did the physiotherapy the physiatry had some imaging done and then was diagnosed following that. So been kind of, and we can get into the details if you want, but been kind of bouncing around in the system until I had a a previous surgery in 2021 that didn't really take. So decided to go and uh, get the joint replacement in September of 2022. What were the symptoms that you had that kind of led you to go see a healthcare professional? Yeah. So reflecting on that, I think there's, it's hard to not know. And I think that's the main thing being kind of a younger guy, pretty active. I wasn't sure if it was just like a a pain and strain. I think we've all been in the gym and like you're doing your exercises and something doesn't feel right, but you sit on it for a couple days and then it resolves itself. So I think that was the biggest point of ambiguity for me personally. It was, I was going through this. I wasn't sure if I was just kind of being a wuss for lack of a better term. And like, it's just a little bit of pain. Maybe I just pulled something, just a, a muscle, muscle strain or something like that. Um, but it just kind of it wouldn't get better. And I think that was the main thing that I'm getting at here is a lot of these these kind of minor aches and pains resolve after a couple of weeks. But I just had this nagging hip pain. And that was the first symptom that kind of came on was that initial session. Something didn't feel right. And then I just ha- kind of had this nagging pain that wasn't resolving. And I, again, I was trying to stretch it out. I was foam rolling. I was doing all these kind of active rehab stuff and, and all self-management at this point, but just trying to kind of throw the kitchen sink at it to get this nagging hip better. And then it just wasn't, wasn't getting better. So what those symptoms are specifically, it was just kind of like nagging pain directly on the joint. 
um, pain while I was walking. No real like clicking or anything like that, but it was just something didn't feel right. And I think we can all kind of resonate with that of when you're used to a norm and especially when you have something like the other side, which was healthy at this point, you know what things should feel like and something just didn't. So what healthcare professional did you see? Was it like a family physician, a rheumatologist, an allied healthcare professional? Because I know that you kind of mentioned that, you know, you had this pain, but it kind of felt like you wanted to make it go away before you made that decision to go see a doctor. And I think that was also for me too. Like I had swollen fingers. And so we used to like wrap it around and hope for it to go away before we saw a doctor. So I'm wondering like what healthcare professional did you end up seeing? Yeah, that's a a great point. And I think I definitely sat on it for probably longer than I should have, but ended up, uh, I think, again, we're taking me back a few years, but I think I probably saw GP first. So just went in like, hey, having this nagging hip pain, not really sure what it's related to. It's been sitting around for for months at a time. Um, And then I think he probably referred me to go see a physio. Um, So physio was the first one that I saw. And I went and, and saw one of them for probably six to 12 months specifically. So just working on kind of anything and everything under the sun. I honestly thought it was just musculoskeletal. Um, so that was my main kind of point of inquiry going to talk to them was how can I stretch this out in a different way or what what aspect of kind of muscular strengthening can I do to try and reinforce this joint and really fix this hip pain. So at that point, I didn't think it was the joint specifically. I thought it was just kind of connective tissue or muscles itself. Um, so yeah, that was kind of the first point of contact from there. And then kind of bounced around again from that physio, nothing was kind of working. So then went and got referred to the physiatrist. So I went physio back to GP, physio is not working. I've kind of thrown the the book at it. And then he referred me to the physiatrist to go have uh, a bunch more rehab done with him. And then when did you end up getting like the diagnosis of osteoarthritis? Yeah. So kind of following that, that train of thought. It was physio for about six to 12 months, saw the GP, went on the wait list to go see the physiatrist. So physiatrist being the kind of sports and rehab actual medical doctor. So it was the the physical exercise doctor, essentially. So that's the physiatrist. Went and saw him for about six to 12 months. And throughout that process, that's when the diagnosis actually came on. So we were doing a bunch of stuff related to joint injections and whatnot. And then I went and had some imaging done. So had an x-ray and then I think the actual diagnosis came on um, when I had an MRI of my hip. So again, got on a wait list for that, went and got the MRI. And that was at the point when I went back to the physiatrist that he kind of informed me um, that I had a way of my my hip. So how long was this like process? It just sounds like you had a lot of back and forth communication. And that's one thing that I think your whole audience and you specifically can probably attest to of like, it's a process. And I think that's a lot of things that... one of the advantages of Canadian healthcare is it's so accessible and you do have opportunities to access all this different care and it's, it's great care, but there is such this kind of lag between these different sessions. So it was like, like I said, I started this process in about 2017 and it was probably end of 2019, early 2020 when I got that actual diagnosis. So it was like definitely partially my fault of trying to nurse it at home by myself. And I think a lot of people do the same, but did that for months and then tried everything with the physio and then went. So it just kind of cascaded into this long process that, that took a few years to get that diagnosis, but kind of one of those things. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that kind of experience. Yeah. But it's interesting for me. Like I also did kind of like, okay, I think a lot of my family and I, we were kind of in denial that 
it should because i played tennis so it just made sense yeah. okay why is your wrist hurting why is your finger hurting probably because you play tennis and so like we always related it to tennis and that and that kind of led me to wait a couple of weeks and tie it up and i don't know it was just like yeah. a lot of random stuff that we were doing to like make sure that it was not anything more than what it was and like when i didn't see anything get better then i went to my gp and luckily i was diagnosed in like less than a month which is very rare oh, wow. for all the people that i've talked to in my podcast and people that i've just talked to in general i don't know he just like did a blood test and it said that my rheumatoid factor was positive and high and so he's like hey you have arthritis let's refer you to sick kids like it was so quick which is not normal for a lot of people yeah. So what was the the process leading up to that point of going to get that blood test? Like how long did you do all that, that your own rehab and like taping things and whatnot? How long before that did it take? Well, I was feeling symptoms in September of 2016. And then it kind of progressed to my fingers, my wrist, my feet. And then September to October, we wrapped it up maybe like two or three weeks. It wasn't multiple months. It was like two to three weeks. And then we're like, this is not getting better. So then yeah. I went to my GP in October and then mid-October I was referred to sick kids. And I think it also depends on like who can actually find what is wrong with you or you have to be able to like order the correct tests and things like that, right? Like you have to get that MRI, you have to get the blood test. Not everyone can tell that this is what's going to happen, you know, even as doctors can't really predict that this is what it's going to be. Totally. And I think that resonates with me because I think I went through the same process a little bit with the physiatrist. So originally, like the idea was your hips hurting, you've tried all the active rehab, like that's great. Um, if it is osteoarthritis, logic would dictate that a joint injection, so specifically like a steroid shot in the actual joint, you should see some resolution of that if it's the actual hip joint itself. So going to the physiatrist after doing a few few sessions with him, he's like, let's try a joint shot went in, did one of those, and I had no no difference in pain. So like totally atypical to what I thought should happen. Like at this point, I'm more or less convinced it's my hip. Let's do the injection. Everything's going to be better. And then I know it's my hip definitively, but that didn't happen. And I think that that was one of the things of like, like you said, ordering the right tests and like, okay, now we're kind of on ground zero. How does this shape out? So I actually went and had my back. I had an MRI on my back and then did a, a nerve root block on my back because they thought that could be referring the pain in my hip. So again, just kind of ping-ponging around the system of, of try this, try that. What are we going to do to kind of prevent surgery or like a, a full total hip replacement? How can we try all these different factors? So like you said, it, it's it's amazing these different aspects. You think it's just you walk in and you go from A to B to C and then you get your care. But honestly, it, you hit all these different marks and some things work out. And it really kind of speaks to the, the idea that medicine is almost as much of an art as it is a science. Just because I was able to get that diagnosis in a month doesn't mean that after that, I couldn't find medication for two years that worked for me. So it's like, you can get that diagnosis, but now it's like, what do I do with that diagnosis? Cause you need to find, you know, what medication will work, how to reduce that inflammation. That's probably been there for a couple of years prior. I don't know. I feel like a lot of the times people think like, yes, we're going to get that diagnosis, but it's just so much more than that. Because for me, it took two years. And you mentioned joint injections and how that didn't work for you. Did you only get those joint injections once or multiple times? How did that work? Yeah, so I got the the first one. That didn't take. And then I went and had this kind of whole sidetrack of going down the back route and trying to fix that. And then in preparation, I was kind of contemplating if surgery was on the table after that because the back thing didn't really pan out and that didn't help. 
Um, so when I was talking to the physiatrist again, like, hey, we explored the joint injection that didn't take. Then we went into the back that didn't take as well. Like, what are the steps now? Like, do I go see the, the ortho surgeon or do we want to try something different? And he was kind of at the point of like, not sure what to do. Let's go talk to the surgeon. Um, but do you want to try another injection just to, to be rigorous? And I think that was a nice option. So I did end up having a second joint injection and uh, that same kind of result, no no pain resolution or anything related to that. And what they ended up finding in the MRI actually um, was the the dye that was used in the MRI was actually bleeding into the one of the bursa in the hips. So it was like, it basically wouldn't sit in the hip joint as far as I know. And I'm kind of in deep waters here, a little bit out of my depth in terms of anatomy, but the dye that they were putting in the joint was actually bleeding out. So I think that kind of comes back to the idea of maybe all the joint injections so the actual steroid wasn't necessarily sticking within the joint capsule itself. It could have been kind of transitioning out, um, which, or, or something to that effect. Anyways, again, I'm, I'm kind of out of my depth, but basically how I interpreted it was all the stuff that was supposed to help wasn't sitting in that joint capsule. So it kind of gave me a sense of like, even though we put it there, maybe it's not staying there, which is ultimately leading to this. So so I don't know, it was it was a weird thing. But yeah, ha ended up having the joint injections twice, same kind of result, nothing took. Um, so then ended up getting referred to the surgeon after that. Wow. So I also had joint injections. I had 10 joint injections. In, Holy moly. Yeah, when I was 16, because none of the medications worked. So I had 10 joint injections. But at that point, yeah. I literally couldn't walk, I could barely write, I was like, suffering so yeah. but for me it really helped i was able to do a lot more and obviously a joint injection is just a band-aid and it doesn't work for everyone yeah. anyone so after six yeah. months like it wears six months to a year it wears off and that's what my rheumatologist told me so then i had to find medication that worked for me and luckily i did find that but it's still i still had flare-ups here and there and so i had to get another joint injection in on my pinky and wrist um yeah Actually, in total in my life, I have joint injections like three times. So the first time was 10 joints, then it became two, and then it became one. So it like slowly went okay. down. But yeah, yeah no, it's, it's interesting to hear from your perspective that it didn't really work. And that just shows that like not everything works for everyone and so like individualized and personal. Totally. And did you get them in all different joints? Like you said previously, like pain was affecting a bunch of different joints was it was that kind of the angle they took with the joint injections is kind of just throw everything at it or so it was my ankles and then my wrists and then my fingers and so they had to do a couple fingers because like it was like literally very very swollen to the point where it was like it just did not look like you know now it's completely different and I'm like very grateful yeah. for that but at that point I was I didn't have medication that worked for me so they and i had damage in my like fingers and wrists and ankles so they were like we need to do something so first it was my ankles my wrists and my fingers and then the second time it was just one of my fingers and then my left wrist and then the third time it was just my wrist my wrist is like the worst and to type and write all the time oh brutal yeah so but it worked and that was and i was like very grateful for that but i I see like how you had to find something else and try other ways to kind of manage your pain. And so let's jump into surgery. So I'm assuming that that's something that you had to go through. So let me just bring us back to that. At 29 years old, you were given the option to have a total hip replacement. What were your thoughts at that time when you were going through this option? Yeah, it's, it's a weird one. And I think I wouldn't mind taking it back for a second. Just I wanted to ask you, like going from you go from this healthy individual and I think this gets into the idea of this total joint replacement and we can explore that in a second, but like 
what did it feel like for you going from you're playing tennis, you're super active, you're a young person, and then all of a sudden, like, boom, you get this pain, then you get a diagnosis all within a relatively short period of time. Like, I was just curious on what that felt like for you of being like, you get this, this diagnosis that you wouldn't expect at this age, objectively, and happy to talk on my side of things related to that. But I was just curious on what was that like for you? And how did that affect kind of like, all your biopsychosocial things related to your your daily living like it's a it's a huge question there's no right answer obviously but like we're going from like you were in state a and then all of a sudden you're in state b and like what was that transition like yeah so i was diagnosed in grade eight with juvenile arthritis and in grade eight that's like such a weird time to get this diagnosis because it's like i'm going to high school soon but i was also in elementary school so people knew me in that way and then now i'm like making new friends and going into a new kind of area and in grade eight i had no idea what this was and why i was dealing with it and i couldn't even explain it to other people because i had no idea myself and i guess like the more like social aspect of it like i changed my lifestyle which we'll get into for what you did but i changed my lifestyle so like i didn't eat certain things just to like see if it would work for me and like my inflammation levels and then i couldn't do gym class i couldn't lift things up that was like when my arthritis was super active i had to miss a week of school because i couldn't walk for some reason wow. i had no idea why so it was just like a lot i couldn't write anymore like imagine going from someone who Dude, could, that's huge yeah someone that could do their homework every single day and i know this is for other people it's like oh my god you didn't get to do your homework that sounds great but for me it was i was such a high achiever and the fact yeah. that i couldn't do the assignments the tests the quizzes and like do things that other people did was just so hard for me it didn't make sense how one day i was fine and the next day i was in so much pain so it was, it was kind of like yeah learning how to adapt and i think that whole transition adapting process happened in high school because in high school you meet new people you're in a new environment to reiterate natasha i think that's that's super challenging for you and i commend you on on being able to take on such a huge thing at such a young and vulnerable age objectively like i think coming from my angle i was a little bit older and i'll get into that in a sec but having that in grade eight like i couldn't imagine you're at an, such an impressionable age you have like all the social elements let alone you're trying to work your way towards university or whatever occupation you want to get into like so many moving parts at that age that couldn't have been easy to take on and i commend you for that versus i think in my case it was i was a little bit older so again i was probably thinking back six years 24 25 when this diagnosis came on so i was out of undergrad i think uh, yeah, I just finished up or I was finishing up my master's at this point. So I was kind of on the trajectory where I knew where I was going to be in a couple of years. I had an idea of what field I was going to be working in. I was more or less stable in terms of I was, had a good relationship going. I had a lot of my daily routine down. So I think and I was just kind of, quote unquote, like fully developed as an adult, like mentally. I had all those different things in, in line. So for me, to getting this diagnosis, it it was definitely weird. And I think that was the main thing I can relate to for years was like, and as you mentioned, it's, it's not known as a young person's disease. Like you think of like hip pain, okay, you have osteoarthritis. Well, I don't have to worry about that. I'm not 65 years old, right? Like young people don't get joint replacements unless you're in a car accident or something like that, where you, you've had this traumatic event, like it doesn't just wear out. I'm 30. Like I've ran marathons before. I'm quite active. Like I'm doing everything right why why are we going down this road so i think that was the main thing for me of trying to trying to accept this idea of going from this healthy person doing all these different active things to 
accepting this diagnosis and like, oh, like you want to run? Running's not really an option anymore. And like, I'd already kind of known that and we can get into lifestyle things before and like how I just naturally kind of changed some of my activities to accommodate. Like running gives me a huge flare up. It's not worth the cost of that. Let's exclude that. Like heavy squats or deadlifts or things like this, they're just not worth it because it just, it destroys me for the next couple of days. So I think that element was like a weird shift and it kind of started to shift how I was doing various things in my life. But as as far as the diagnosis goes, it was just kind of a strange, like we all wear different hats in life and I've got my engineering hat, I've got my PhD hat, I've got my other lifestyle and, and hobby hat and all this kind of stuff. And then you all of a sudden you go from this normal individual to now I'm taking on a chronic disease hat or I'm going to get a joint replacement. Like it's a weird transition. And I think that was some something that I kind of had... I didn't necessarily struggle with it, but I, it was just grappling with it of, again, this change of lifestyle, like you're a marathon runner and now you go to, you can't do that anymore. And you can't even run like a couple kilometers. Like that's, you can do it, but you're going to pay through the nose for it. And I think that was just a weird shift for me. Moving from that at 29 years old, you were given the option to have a total hip replacement. What was your thought process while going through some of these options? Yeah, so walking it back a little bit. So I had a hip arthroscopy in July of 2021. So that's a minimally invasive surgery. I was in Kelowna at this time. Um, surgeon goes in and basically does a, a minimally invasive procedure where they try and clean out the joint. So the whole goal and to reflect back on kind of the nature of surgery in this sense they want to preserve as much of the native anatomy as possible. So in an ideal circumstance, obviously, you're not going to change your hip joint just for the sake of it. They want to keep as much of the your normal anatomy as possible. So the idea is first, let's go in. And after talking to the, the surgeon a little bit, um, we said, like, we don't know if this is going to work or not, but it's kind of the best best case scenario at this point of you've tried the joint injections. It's not your back. We think it's got to be something regarding the hip. Let's go in and we can try and clean it up as much as possible. We don't really know what we're going to find because the MRI did say some stuff, but then the injection didn't work. So it was kind of like the surgeon basically said, like, this isn't a silver bullet. We don't know if this is going to give you what you're looking for, but we're kind of at the end of the road as far as like management options go, right? Because we've done all the musculoskeletal stuff. We've done the injections. We've done the MRI, like surgery is an option. So let's go, let's go do that. So had the minimally invasive surgery. They ended up, um, so we went in, they told me they removed a three by three centimeter piece of cartilage from the joint. So if you think about that, like that's a pretty big size, right? Like almost alarmingly big. So coming out of surgery with that, that was definitely like a huge piece of cartilage that they took out. Like at that point, he's like, you definitely have osteoarthritis. We tried to fix it up as much as possible. And they did this thing called a microfracture. So what that exactly is, is they pulled this loose body out of the joint. So that loose piece of cartilage. And then there was this kind of like bone on bone exposed surface now, because obviously the cartilage covers the joint. You have this bone on bone now because you removed that three by three section. So they go in and poke a bunch of holes in it to elicit some blood flow into the joint space. So that helps develop scar tissue in the joint. So basically doing whatever they can to try and salvage and not have that bone on bone um, contact. So try and poke some holes, build some scar tissue around that, and then you won't have that. So that was kind of what they did in that surgery. And they they were, I had a labral tear as well. Um, and some, it's called FAI, femoral acetabular impingement. So basically the way my hips align wasn't quite correct. So I had a few moving parts in this operation, but they went and fixed as much as they could. They did this, this micro fracture. 
And then following that, it was six weeks of non-weight bearing. So go through, go through that. That had its own intricacies, but go through the full rehab, uh, kind of fast forward to about six months out of that first surgery. And I, w- I just didn't get better. Like I, it, it was going great until I started to load the joint again. And then right away, like, boom, pain's back. So at about six months, then I decided like, okay, well, this first surgery didn't work. I'm moving down at this point from Kelowna to Vancouver. So I got referred to a new surgeon. And at that point I went and saw him and kind of at that first appointment, I I don't mean to ramble, but at that first appointment, then we decided like you can either go on the list right now and get that replacement done, or you can, if you can endure the pain for another 10 years, then maybe it makes sense to kind of kick the can down the road. Because at this point, like you have osteoarthritis, we've done everything we can up until this point. Um, if it's just a matter of three years, like you're going to need a revision surgery down the way anyways, does it make sense to kind of like bite down on the mouth guard for three years just to get the replacement then, or just get the replacement. So at that point I went on the list to, to actually get it. And so once you did get it, how did this procedure affect, you know, the other parts of your life at that time? Yeah. So it was a good procedure, honestly. And I think reflecting back on, so again, I had the hip arthroscopy first and then I had the total joint replacement about a year, year and a half later. The total hip replacement was actually a great rehab process. And I commend Canadian healthcare and, and how far medicine has really taken joint replacement, at least in, in this situation. Um, I was up on crunches doing stairs the same day. I got discharged from the hospital the same day. I was back to work. Fortunately, I work remotely, so I was able to be back to work kind of within the first week of my rehab. Um, So it was a great process. And I think building off of that, I was able to go see the physiotherapist quite a bit, Did tried to really do as many of the exercises in the rehab that I could because I knew, again, I'm kind of at the end of my leash here. I want to make sure I'm kind of your ideal patient. Let's go through the full rehab routine. So did all the exercises, did as much rehab as possible and, and, kind of getting towards where I am now. I did have a flare up a couple months ago, but I think it's still just muscle imbalance. So having nursed this for like six, six years, basically it affected my gait and I walked with a limp quite a bit. So obviously your, your body adapts to this to try and protect the joint itself. So as I was walking, I developed this huge muscle imbalance. So I had a little bit of pain a couple months ago and they think it's still just muscle weakness on my affected side. But I've been able to get back to a lot of things that I wasn't able to do before, like a lot of the longer walks, like take my dog on a Saturday morning and go for a 10 kilometer like walk and even just flat ground. Like previously, that would have just like lit me up for the the couple days following that before these operations. And then now with with it, I don't really have to think about kind of the fallout. And I think that's a big part of I always equate it to kind of having like a timer for your joint. You can expend so much time and kind of as you get past that, then you're going to pay for it. And I think that's one of the big things that I'm sure you can relate to is like not having that anymore. And I think probably your medications help manage that. But I'm able to do things without really thinking of the consequences as much. Yeah, because I think you also get really used to living now with this chronic condition. So you've learned how to like adapt and how to figure out pain management strategies and the way that you can like live your life as pain-free as possible which is still a challenge and i feel like it is for everyone because there will be ups and downs but i think that over time and over a period of time you learn how to work with the disease rather than just like you know saying now i have this disease my life is over because now you're able to 
really work with it and figure out, okay, this is what I can do today, but I can't do this tomorrow. And sometimes you can just be spontaneous. How are you feeling when you realize that, okay, like I can't do something that I really, really like doing anymore? It's It sucks, honestly. I think it's a, a big mental shock. I think I come from a place where I'm used to not not saying no to myself. Like if I put my mind to something, I'm going to do it. And I think being constrained physically while not mentally is a weird thing. And I think that's one thing that took a lot of time to adjust to of like, if I say I'm going to go run this hill, I'm going to run this hill, whether I, whether I can or not, or whether I'm going to pay for it or not. So I think adapting to that and like basically like injuring myself over and over again to the point where you finally say like, it's just not worth it. Like I could do it, but it's not worth it. I think that was a big undertaking and being able to have that as a choice, I think was a big one for me of like, I'm consciously choosing not to do this rather than I think a lot of people out there probably like, it's not an option. So in, in before my surgeries, like if I wanted to go run 5k, I could still do that, but I would just pay for it on the other side. But then getting to the point where I could say, okay, it's not worth it was a big one. And it definitely took a lot of kind of, mental mental gymnastics almost to kind of take like i'm super active guy i can do what i want to all of a sudden i'm putting up these boundaries for myself and i'm not not used to doing that and i'm sure you can attest to these things too of like you're you're used to being able to do whatever you want and then all of a sudden it's constrained by some external force that you don't know really why or how it happened to you and it's not necessarily your fault but all of a sudden now you just have to start putting up these strategic walls. And I think that was a weird one to adapt to not having done that before. But I think again, being at like a 24, 25 year old, when I started to do this, I was in a fairly good state to make these conscious decisions versus I think as like a grade eight, when you're quite active, you're playing tennis and stuff. I'd be curious on how that affected you because I was a totally different person at that age. And I, I definitely wouldn't be as conscious or of sound mind to make that decision at that age you have to consciously make an effort to figure out like what you need and what your needs are in order to succeed that's really hard to come yeah. to like even be motivated to do that it's hard to be like hey like i want to do this these are my goals and i'm gonna try to do it no matter what because there are a lot of people that will bring you down you need to have your own kind of resilience and like you need to be able to advocate for yourself because there's so many people that are gonna be like no you can't do it and i'm wondering like yeah. On that note, have you had to access any accommodation? Did you ever need that at any point? I know like 24, 25, like you were kind of done undergrad, so. Honestly, I've had a really good run. So I think I haven't really, haven't really needed any accommodations. I've had a great support system around me, whether it's friends and family, or again, at that point, I was kind of out of my education, um, at least at that stage. So. I, I didn't really need a lot of accommodations and stuff. It was more of self-imposed stuff. So getting back to what we previously talked about, it was more of like personal adaptation, got a great support system around me. I've always had great individuals helping me out. Um, it was more just like, honestly, a lot of self-inflicted stuff. So like spend a lot of time in the gym or a lot of time doing active things. I'm going to have to back that off. And that's just the reality of it. But as far as like accommodations and stuff go, um, the only one that comes to mind is I was working in Fort McMurray, Alberta for a little bit and trying to do stuff like I, I did quite a bit of work on sand. So I was on around tailings ponds. So I was working as a, a geotechnical engineer there for a couple of years and working in work boots for like a 12 hour shift on sand just like destroyed my hip. So trying to trying to adjust that and kind of like I'm not really one to speak up either. I don't want to be kind of the squeaky wheel in the sense of just like put my head down and just deal with it. So my personality is more 
like introspective in that sense. And I, I tend to bottle those things up. So in those instances, I probably could have. And like a lot of companies are really good about adaptations these days and, and accessibility and different needs. And I think a lot of that is reflected from, from COVID and kind of the accommodations that needed to be made for that. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I really needed a ton. It was just more of a, an adjustment of like, I'm dealing with this pain now. How can I self-manage to try and kind of optimize my situation given that pain is going to happen regardless? So were you going to go to physio school, but you didn't end up going? I did my bachelor's in engineering, master's in engineering as well. And then I started my PhD and then decided to get into the MPT PhD program. So it's like a joint physio school PhD program. Um, so I was enrolled in that. And then it, it's a funny story. Um, I was actually supposed to start last September. I was supposed to start physio school. So it would have been two years PhD and then started physio school that goes for 26 months and then goes back to PhD. So it's a super cool program and I've got a lot of good contacts in there and it's really interesting for anyone curious about it, highly recommend it. But I was supposed to start in September of 2022. And funny enough, I had my operation come up in September, 2022, right? So at that time I was kind of, I was scheduled, I was enrolled for physio school. I was like starting like orientation week's going to be coming up. And then boom, you get a, a letter in the mail saying your surgery dates come up. It's like two weeks into the start of term for physio school. And like, as you know, similar to, to medical school or any of these things, like these programs are kind of like drinking through a fire hose and it's, it's not really an option to kind of skip prolonged periods. So it was more or less like kind of an acceptance between the program and myself that maybe it wasn't a good time to start that. So I decided to defer, deferred for a year. And I, I ended up deciding to just drop out of the program and just continue on with the PhD component. Because I think the way my PhD has worked out, I'm relatively far along. So kind of pressing pause um, in September, 2023. So coming September to go into physio school didn't really make sense for me. I'd rather just get the PhD done and then see, do I want to go into physio school at that point? Do I want to pursue a postdoc? Do I want to go into industry? So I think just finishing the the PhD program makes the most sense at this time for me. But um, yeah, it was just, it's funny how things work out, right? Like uh, having supposed to start and then all of a sudden, boom, like, again, just like that diagnosis, things happen, all of a sudden, like your path changes and you just kind of have to, to flow with it with kind of as much preparation and kind of luck as you have. Just make an informed decision at the time and kind of do that to your best of your ability. Yeah, for sure. And we talked a lot about, you know, being physically active and before your diagnosis. And obviously you had your surgery and at that point you would have to do some sort of exercises or go into like rehab physio, whatever that kind of helps you get back to where you should be. And so I'm wondering, how did you kind of get back into being active? Yeah, that's that's a huge question. And I think a lot of people can probably attest to that of it's it's a big process right like as much as everyone thinks like boom i get surgery i'm going to go back to my normal everyday activities like surgery a physio described it to me as like surgery is its own trauma for the body right so like although you think surgery and surgeries come so far these days it's still a huge undertaking and your body takes months and months to recover from that so i think for a total hip your average recovery time to like more or less um, fully healed about four to six months, but for full recovery, it's about 12 months. So you're kind of back to doing whatever you want to do at about four to six, depending. And again, this, 
all of this is kind of with asterisks because I'm not the typical age group that gets this procedure done, right? So looking into the evidence and like, because I'm a PhD student, I'm quite kind of adept at the research. I was curious on it. So I was going in, I was on Google Scholar looking at all these different articles and like none of it really applies to me. Like even the rehab programs, I was kind of on YouTube just trying to figure out like, what are young adults doing for rehab? Because all of these rehab programs that I'm seeing are for like your 65 to 80 year old like grandma or your mom or something like that. So none of this really applies. So I think that was an interesting finding of, of what I'm getting to here is trying to do that rehab, but tailor it in a way that made sense for me. I was coming into surgery as quite active and I wanted to kind of keep that up and keep that momentum into my rehab. So really just kind of looking into a program that made sense for me. And I think it was still quite involved. So I, I did probably three to four months of really strict rehab. Again, I wanted to kind of make sure that I did all the exercises as prescribed, try to be the ideal patient. Cause I, again, I'm at the end of my leash. I want to make sure I do this and do it right and kind of put my all into it so I could get back to normal activity. But again, it was just trying to, it was a weird situation. And I'm sure you can probably attest to this as well of like finding things that really fit your demographics and like your, your goals specifically, like trying to get back. Okay. I want to be in the gym an hour and a half every day. How do I go from, I just had my hip replaced to get to that stage of like, can I, can I be squatting anymore? Can I be doing the elliptical and things like that? How can I tailor this rehab program to get me back to that as quickly as possible? What is your routine of being active now? Yeah, so I think to preface, I, I one aspect of my personality and how I self-identify is being active. And I think that's been for the last kind of since undergrad. Undergrad was kind of the messy point, And I think a lot of people can attest to that of, things fall off, exams come up, like it's not as easy to maintain a, a consistent schedule. But kind of following undergrad, I always resonated and I don't have many hobbies, but I think working out and just kind of being a gym rat, for lack of a better term, is is part of who I am. So kind of my, I really anchor part of my personality in being active. So my typical routine is I'll get up in the morning, I'll read a bit, and then I'll go to the gym. Usually it's about an hour and a half, maybe six or seven days a week. I'll do kind of an hour of resistance training and then about a half hour of cardio. And I think it's it's almost as much for me mental as it is physical because it just helps and put my headphones on. I'm in a clear space. I don't have anyone emailing me or texting me or anything like that. It's kind of my me time. So I think, yeah, I just try and balance it and, and not specifically like I don't think I can be an athlete, quote unquote, anymore. So like like I was a marathoner before, a triathlete, like I don't really resonate with any specific sport. It's more or less just trying to be as active as possible and, and maintain kind of a, a healthy body as much as possible these days. And I'd be curious on what your kind of routine and your thoughts on, on exercise as someone with a chronic condition are, because I think it varies so much. And let alone when you layer on top the concept of being younger with one of these conditions. Oh, my God. I literally don't have any sort of routine. It's not that good. Like, I feel like I am not the prime example of active i am definitely not and i was never but you're active. still you're in the weeds of undergrad still like yeah that's true i guess see but that also becomes an excuse you know like i feel like i'll be like oh i'm always going to be in school so it's always going to be an excuse and i think that's like the worst thing but i was never an active person before i was diagnosed so i don't find myself like wanting to be extra active now either because like that just wasn't me i'm more of like an artistic person like i sang i dance to to reflect back i'm kind of 
between both of us, I think the underlying theme here is just do what works for you, honestly. And I think as as people with these chronic conditions, we know that exercise in some capacity helps as tolerated. Like obviously you don't want to go way into the deep end and overdo it, but it's it's good to be active in some capacity. So I think just finding what works for you. And if that's again more on my side where it's like part of my routine, it's kind of if I don't do it, I get super stressed versus you have to schedule it in or do it with these groups, like whatever works for you, honestly, if you can maintain an active lifestyle. And I think building off of that, if that helps you manage your condition, then just do whatever exercise means to you. And it, whether that's walking or resistance training or group dance or something like that, like however you can be active and build it into your schedule within reason, I think is super important. And, and again, you won't, you won't really stick to something, or at least in my experience, you won't stick with it unless you like doing it. So honestly, just find what makes you happy in an active capacity, whether that's hiking or bike riding or walking your dog or whatever it is, and, and try and stick with that. You only get one body. And although we have these chronic conditions, you can still tweak all these different variables as much as possible to kind of fine tune your own sense of self. So I think whatever that means to you, I think is is useful to do in some capacity. So I think certain like trying different nutrition different sleep schedules different activity schedules like modifying all these factors that you can control or within your means i think is super important and that's one thing that has helped me manage this condition is just trying to like does this diet make a difference does this sleep pattern make a difference to oh running gives me a huge flare-up well let's let's back off on that a little bit and it takes time like it's not an overnight solution to kind of try these different things out but whatever is kind of under your control i think is, is great to play with and also like the types of shoes that i wear when i am active or i try to i used to be a very stressed person like i used to stress out with my brother i used to stress out like just like my little brother used to like lose his water bottle and like not get on the bus and like it was just like i was a very stressed out kid and so i've learned to stress out like i'm not as stressed anymore or like i kind of am like it's not worth it and so like changing yeah. your mindset also helps in terms of you know pain management strategies or like figuring out like as a lifestyle like you're implementing more of a positive mindset less stress obviously there's going to be negative thoughts originally when i was diagnosed i was like why me i used to cry all the time but yeah. like i changed in a way kind of evolved i would say to a point where i now know that like okay this is going to be something that i'm going to have to live with so how am i going to like ensure that i can still like live my life and still be a positive person and like still do what i want to do in less stress and pain as possible yeah can i ask you something natasha yeah um so if you if you think back given where you are now and you've come this huge distance from where you are originally if you were to to say something to yourself kind of at your time of diagnosis talk to young natasha what, what's your 30 second pitch to to her what are you going to say that like it, it's going to be okay or what advice are you going to give or just what what's at top of mind for that i would definitely say that it gets better when i was 13 i was freaking out that yeah. it's not going to get better I was just so stressed. I'm in so much pain, swelling. I'm on these medications, but honestly it gets so much better. You yeah. find people that you can talk to through research or organizations and so many other things. Like I've just learned how to live with it, but also adapt with it. And I know we've mentioned that a lot. And I think I'd definitely say to like my younger self that 
it gets better and there are people that are there to support you throughout your journey. You just have to be patient about it because I think if you want everything right now, it's not going to work. The medication, it's not going to be there right when you get your diagnosis. It's a journey and I don't think a lot of us know that when we're diagnosed. One more thing that I'd say is a lot of patients tend to Google side effects of medications and their families also do that too. And we yeah. feel like we don't want to get on medications. Know that your doctors are there for you. They're making good decisions for you because we're so vulnerable. And it's not 